Hello and welcome to episode 23 of Categorically Oscars. I'm Cal. And I'm Chris. And a special welcome to our guest today, who's a, a long-standing film critic uh, who writes for The Guardian, uh, The Telegraph, Little White Lies, Reader's Digest, and um, he regularly posts on his blog, synesthesiac.blogspot.com. Mike McHale, uh, major thank you for coming on the show. Oh, hello. Thank you so much for having me. This is, uh, it's, it's an honour, and uh, I apologise in advance if I've subjected you to some uh, crimes against music, but we'll, we'll, get into those, we'll get into those in due course, I'm sure. Perhaps some crimes against film as well. <laughs> <laughs> Unquestionably. Um, yeah, so every, everyone we've had on the podcast so far as a guest has chosen a category that we'd not previously done before, and um, this is no exception, so... Um, this this might be kind of encroaching on Desert Island Discs territory, um, <laughs> but <laughs> but these songs have, have not been off my Spotify, and I'm guessing uh, you guys too. Yeah, I think so. The, um, I, I I try to uh, pick something that was a little bit left field. So we are we are looking at the best songs from 1984, um, and uh, I picked it because. This was kind of a formative moment for me. It was as I was starting to get interested in pop culture in general, but movies and and, and music in in particular. And it's a sort of throwback mm. to me to a time. See, I miss that moment where we had tie-in promos, um, pop videos that featured uh, clips from a particular film, and even better, pop promos that featured the band interacting with scenes from a particular film. Um, and this is this is from from around that moment where I think sort of pop and movies collided. Um, I'm sure you know the corporate the suits in the uh, in the front office would call it synergy or something terrible like that. <laughs> but it was, there was just this sort of coming coming together of music and movies, and you could look at the top forty pop chart and know what was in your local multiplex that weekend. There was a sort of clear crossover. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so the nominees this week. Um... Uh, Against All Odds, um, written and sung by Phil Collins. Uh, Footloose, uh, written by Kenny Loggins and Dean Pitchford and performed by Loggins. Uh, Let's Hear It For The Boy, written by Pitchford and performed by Denise Williams. Ghostbusters, written and sung by Ray Parker Jr., allegedly. Um, (laughs) And the winner, I Just Called To Say I Love You, written and performed beautifully by Stevie Wonder. Um... Shall we take it away with Against All Odds? Who had seen this before? <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't. No, this was the, this is the first time I'd actually seen the film. I mean, obviously knew the song from from uh, my younger days, but uh, you know, I would have been six years old when About All Odds emerged in cinemas. And it, as far as I can remember, it was an eighteen certificate. So I'd, up until this week, I had not uh, put myself through the experience that is About All Odds. It was quite an experience yeah um i'd never seen such a 80s noir i think um and i actually this is a embarrassing thing to admit but i have not seen out of the past um that this is a remake of i have to imagine it's a step down from the original since the original is regarded (laughs) as such a classic um i 
I kind of enjoyed it. I kind of enjoyed all of these movies in a doofy 80s kind of way. I just kind of let myself go a little bit. Um, there were definitely some moments in it that I, you know, rolled my eyes and or cringed about. But in terms of the song, I, I really liked the song. I'm a, quite a big Collins fan um, and have been for years. So I, I liked the ending probably the best. Mm of all of it like the end credits were the real highlight for me yeah it does feel quite self-serious with the whole out of the past um factor and and the fact that they've they've cast jane greer and um paul valentine from the original it's you know to kind of amp up the prestige with this one um and actually to be honest jane greer is probably one of the strongest points in it for me but um it it does feel very deliberate in that way, and but I do think this is kind of ambitious. It's it's kind of trying something different at times with the whole Mayan element, um, and the um, <laughs> <laughs> that's that's one way of putting it. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> that um, bizarre uh, sex scene in in the in the haunted cave. In the Ma- <laughs> we'll stick with My, Mayan Mayan sweat house. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mayan sweat house. Yeah. There aren't enough Mayan sweat houses in movies these days, so if nothing else, you get that from this. Yeah, and it's really the the last place on earth you'd expect to get cock blocked by Alex Karras, but it happened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he tracked them down to the fifth century AD. I think that was, uh, that was what was what was going on. And also, it just looks so uncomfortable that sex scene. It's weird because just before um, Jeff Bridges and, and Rachel Ward, who he's tracked down to. Uh, this lavish Mexican holiday resort Um, they have a moment where they're about to kiss and it suddenly cuts to them scuba diving Um, and so as an erotic thriller it's very distract I mean I think the whole thing is very distractible I mean I have um, some residual fondness for this kind of adult melodrama that the studios just don't make anymore. I mean, they've just abandoned this kind of movies for grown-ups because, you know, everything now is men and women in lycra destroying big buildings in vast fistfuls of pixels. You know, it's stuff for teenagers. So this is at least a film that on paper, at least, is pitched at grown-ups. I mean, I do think it is it, it is a complete mess. And, you know, I'm sure that, you know, your legal team would insist that everybody on the set of this film, including James Woods, behaved impeccably. And there was absolutely no cocaine doing the rounds whatsoever. But it does behave <laughs> like a film that's under under the influence of some terror... Because it's so antsy and it's so distractible and it's jumping around from, from bit to bit. So, so it is kind of out of the past. The, the, the plot is loosely that of a private eye going to track somebody down and getting into more and more trouble the further further into their quest they get. Mm. But it's also about zoning variants, and it's also about <laughs> the corporate takeover of American, American football, and and there's a cameo by Kid Creole on the coconuts. I mean, it's just, it's like, it's, it's either a blizzard of cocaine or it's a blizzard of memos coming down from the front office saying, we've got to get this in somehow. This is hot. This is zeitgeisty. Um, and so, to some degree, the, the thriller plot is sort of put on the back burner for a long while. I mean, I, I don't know how you guys felt, but for me, I kind of lost... Um, it lost plausibility. Because for it, there's a, a character who gets abandoned and forgotten about for an hour, who becomes incredibly important towards the end, the Sweezy Kurtz character, who's literally left sitting at a bar waiting for Jeff Bridges to turn up. And when he does turn up and regurgitate the plot 
to her. Um, she has this bizarre knowledge of everything that's gone on over the past hour where she hasn't even met those characters, but she somehow knows the plot that she's getting involved in. Mm. Um, I mean, I do, I, I, I agree with Chris. I, it's very, it's glossily watchable, but it is almost complete nonsense. And as I, I was reading some of the reviews um, online this, these past couple of days, and somebody said it's actually less like a remake of out of the past and more like a prequel to tequila sunrise which i think kind of sums up <laughs> how glossy and 80s and how detached from the original material which is quite sort of le- i mean it has you know out of the past has quite a convoluted plot but it's quite lean and mean in that sort of 40s noir way this is not lean or mean it's it's bloated and baggy and all over the place and yeah very very distractible but but sort of weird, like you say weirdly watchable just as a sort of relic of its time yeah. You do have to wonder what James Woods was thinking in the first place um, when he sends <laughs> Jeff Bridges looking like this um, yes. <laughs> to a Mexican <laughs> holiday resort with his ex-girlfriend. I, <laughs> um, slight naivety there. The, hands, the handsomeness of Jeff Bridges in this is extraordinary. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I say this as a, as a rugged, red-blooded heterosexual male, but watching <laughs> Jeff Bridges in this film, you know, he's had his blonde-haired, blue-eyed handsomest you know you you think of james uh, jeff bridges as a as a teenager and you know and things like the last picture show and he's kind of a string bean and then you think of him in later life and he's this sort of craggy oddball uh, here he's he's like jesus reincarnated he's he's physically perfect i think yeah. yeah i agree i mean i want the twist of having um the scully the the coach also be a hatchet man for James Woods just begs the question why he wasn't the original choice to send because then you like yeah like you're saying you avoid all the trouble if he's the one going after the love interest and it also it also reflects slightly badly on the Rachel Ward character who doesn't have a great deal to do other than to sort of vacillate between Jeff Bridges and and James Woods because all of a sudden you start you start thinking as a viewer you know if I'm with Jeff Bridges having a lovely time on a Mexican beach, I mean, I know that Mayan sweat house looked a bit uncomfortable, but the beaches look lovely. Mm. Why would I? Why would I abandon all that to run back to James Woods, who's you know, who is James Woods? He's Weasley, <laughs> you know, and sort of brilliantly Weasley. But why would you ever leave behind those gorgeous beaches? Yeah, makes no sense. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the whole thing did lose lose it for me when Scully appears outside the cave and you're like what, what is going on where's he come from um, but, yeah. but, um, well I, maybe maybe he has like a, an in-depth knowledge of Mayan sweat houses you know <laughs> he has a very specialist interest he knows that this is you know a sort of lover's lane kind of thing and if they're going to be anywhere they're going to be at it at a Mayan sweat house they do put the sweat into the sweat house I'll, I'll give them that but uh, yeah you know even as an erotic thriller you, there are issues of plausibility because you just think well just the 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 sand on the beaches look lovely if you're gonna have it away with someone have it away down there in the dunes don't go in the mayan sweat house where it's where it's sweaty and it's you know it's it looks terribly uncomfortable Mm -hmm. (laughs) but i I mean the characterization is pretty useless uh rachel ward to me does well um she just doesn't have enough to do um but what was with Jeff Bridges' crying scene about the the football match fixing? I that came from nowhere, and it it just kind of I just was kind of wondering is this is this his whole life is is football all he's got to him? 
it either had the problem of deleted scenes, stuff that was cut out, or stuff that was never filmed in the first place because everyone was too excited that Kid Creole and the Coconuts turn up for a couple of days shooting. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it is that it is that distractible. That's that's the weird thing about it. I mean, it has it has a very odd opening as well in that. The opening credits play out over bridges already down in Mexico, looking around for Rachel Ward. And then we have this whole 20-minute flashback filling in his career as an American football player. You just go, well, why are we suddenly being yanked backwards to get all this stuff? So it, it is it is all over the place. It is kind of watchable for that. But, it, uh, yeah, the, the issues of plausibility with this script were never addressed, I feel. Should we talk about Phil Collins' role in all of this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're going to have to sooner or later, so yeah, let's do it. There's a bit of a chicken and egg situation with this, but I think most of this song had already been done before he was asked to um, to do the song for the film. I think he'd already written it for an album and, and then sort of um, decided against it because it was full of all his, these songs about his ex-wife and it was getting a bit much. Um, mm. <laughs> but does it fit well with the film? I think it. I think it really does. I mean, and this was the the surprise element for me. I mean, all of Collins's sort of early eighties stuff is him getting stuff out of his system about the messy divorce that he went through. So he turns up on top of the pops as early as nineteen eighty one with a, a pot of paint on his uh, piano that he's playing, and this is apparently a coded reference to the fact that he discovered his wife having it away with a painted decorator. You know, even a couple of years after it all happened, he was still you know, brooding and getting all out of it. Um, Bob Stanley, who's the great biographer of pop, he wrote Yeah, 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 which is the great history of, of modern pop music. He describes Phil Collins as uh, the middle-aged guy who turns up on your front lawn at 3am in the morning, you know, to yelling about, you know, will you take him back or, you know, you've turned the kids against me. Um, and that's kind of who, that I think is kind of who Collins was during this period. And And this, you know, against all odds, the song, and maybe uh, Separate Lives, the, the song that he does the following year, the duet with Marilyn Mason that he does the soundtrack of White Nights, is like him getting the very last drops of angst out of his system, you know, summoning up one last bellow into the night, uh, you know, w- what he's been put through and, and everything. Uh, everything like that. And then, of course, he goes on and does Susudio and he turns into fun, cheeky, chappy Phil Collins. So it, 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 there is literally like a final push, you know, and then from 1985 onwards, he's he's happy again. He, he's moved on. But it takes a song like this to get all of that angst out of the system. It's the Farrah Rag and Bone Shop of the Heart, as Yates put it. You know, he's 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 getting deeply in there. Here's the thing. I, I actually, I always quite liked... Uh, against odds, and, and you know, like much of Collins's eighties output, not at all fashionable. But in terms of where how it's used in the film, I think, as Chris said, you know, the the final shot of this film, where you know the song has been threatening to come up on the soundtrack many times through the movie, but it finally comes up and plays out in its its uh, in its entirety over this one last held camera shot of Rachel Ward. And it's the moment in the film where all of a sudden all the themes coalesce and cohere in a way that I don't think Taylor Hackford manages over the, the previous two hours of the film. It's the one point where the film suddenly gets some kind of focus. And it's Phil Collins doing that, which is the extraordinary thing. Um, so, yeah, I, do, I, I, I quite like uh, about... Uh, against all odds, and I'm not. You know, this is maybe the first time I've come out and said this publicly, but um, this is as good a, a forum in which to do it as, as any. 
<laughs> yeah, I, th- I agree. I, I think um, th- the themes do come together in that moment. I was I kept thinking throughout, how are they going to make this work? How is it going to fit with the film? Um, but with that freeze frame at the end and the fact that they can't be together, um, it does kind of work. Um, so mm. I'll give it its due on that one. Um, and I, I have been... I'd been very snooty about Phil Collins in the past because I'm a big Peter Gabriel fan. Um, yeah. I feel like Collins got the career that Peter Gabriel deserved, almost. Um, mm. But I, th- I really like this song. And like my first uh, introduction to this song was Mariah Carey's version. Um, of course, In yes. the early 2000s, which I still think is better. But lyrically, this, this song's got a lot going on. Oh, I was going to say we can all agree at least that uh, that it's it's a better version than the Steve Brookstein version, which is a whole other ball game. <laughs> well, there isn't quite as much at stake beyond someone winning a TV talent competition. But you know, the, the Collins version, he is he is coming he's he's coming at this from the depths of some terrible personal experience, and you hear it in every note on that record, every every sound that he makes. He is wailing and bellowing into the middle of the night i think mm-hmm. there's something to be said for that yeah I, I was i agree and i think um i do like the mariah carey version as well but i i was going to say one of the reasons i like this one so much is because he you can tell that it's just coming from a very personal place and he believes what he's singing which really gives it uh, an edge that makes it work really well and yeah just that kind of calm single shot that becomes a freeze frame with this song playing is just a a great way to end the film and um when i saw that i I thought oh so that's where they got the idea for the end of call me by your name um and i'm not sure which one does it better but um shall we move on to footloose yeah yeah let's do it uh i hadn't seen this one before um and apparently this is based on a, a real-life uh, situation in, in Oklahoma, um, in a small religious town. Dancing was banned until, I think, 1978, and a group of high schoolers um, challenged it. But d- does it work on that level? I think so. I mean, it kind of sets itself the tone and the setting very quickly, Um, and doesn't ask the audience to think too much about the fact that this is a town that bans dancing. It's just kind of a given that, oh, this, I guess this can happen. And we even have Chris Penn kind of rattling off other places where it's happening. So the town, the film kind of sets it up as an expected thing, which is nobody, like, um, Kevin Bacon's character is initially, he's like, really? No dancing? But he's not like shocked by it. He's more just annoyed. So it's supposed to be, it seems to be, it's supposed to be something we're just supposed to accept is a thing. But I've never been in a place that has an ordinance like this, so I don't know. Yeah, and it works, it, it worked for me too, certainly. I, I think of the three big 80s dance movies, Flashdance made the year before is unmistakably 80s and possibly even unmistakably 1983 and specifically. Um, Dirty Dancing, which comes along three years later, is sort of notionally set in the 60s, but is actually taking place in 1987, according to Patrick Swayze's hair and the keyboards <laughs> that everyone gets up and dance to at the end. Mm. Um, Footloose is the only one of these three films that could have 
credibly been made in America, I think, in any decade from the 1950s onwards. Because it's, it's about that eternal struggle between um, freedom and something more oppressive and puritanical, I think, which I think America sometimes wrestles with um, more than any other nation. Um, I, I think, you know, you, you could have made this in the 1950s around the time of Rock Around the Clock and The Wild One as, you know, an early teen rebellion movie. There could have been a counterculture version in the late 60s. Um, this is obviously the version of the Reagan years and the Tipper Gore. I think it's just before Tipper Gore's crusade against rap music. Um, and then it obviously gets remade fairly recently. So I, I think it's just a good story um, or a story that has all the fundamentals in place um, to make engaging cinema and, you know, or a good Friday or Saturday night watch because it's about teens coming together as a group to rise up against some oppressive system. But I think what I rewatched it yesterday and I was surprised by how well made and well told it is directed by Herbert Ross you know a sort of veteran uh of the of the studio system who treats it like a proper drama he doesn't I don't think the handling was ever oh this is going to be some flimsy teen uh, movie where the music matters more than what's actually going on between the than what's going on between the people on screen but um, he casts it well. You know, you've got John Lithgow, Dan Wiest, um, you know, Ken Bacon, who was always more of a performer than a pin-up, I think, in the lead role. Chris Penn, young Sarah Jessica Parker, Laurie Singer, who's terrific. I mean, it, it, it's really well cast. And just there are certain scenes that I just think are really well had, particularly the Lithgow character, who could have been this sort of fire and brimstone preaching tyrant. But actually it's revealed that you know, he's a he's a grieving parent who believes in what he believes in because that makes the world a little more safe and manageable, unapproachable. He's had to deal with this terrible tragedy. Um, so, it, it, you know, the, the attention that Herbert Ross pays to the character arcs and the performances, and it just like even on a scene by scene basis, there's there's an early scene where Kevin Bacon is standing in a porch and they're all talking about Slaughterhouse Five. The adults and how we you know what a terrible you know how can we teach this book with a with a title like Slaughterhouse Five and Bacon goes oh I, I've read that and Bacon throughout that whole scene is is jittery in a way he's constantly in motion he, you can tell he just wants to get up and dance or, or rail against authority or whatever but there there were lots of little sort of you know character details and and uh, uh, beats that I wasn't expecting from a mainstream teen movie that was as big a success as this was yeah. I think also Herbert Ross um, brings the musical element to it as well. Um, I think he'd done Pennies from Heaven recently before this. Yes. Um, and that sequence where sort of Ren's family's not happy with him because he's causing trouble and you get this music video montage of, of all the you know, business that's happened with the teachers at school. But then after that, the actual dance sequence is actually shot really well and... I do think Ross brings something to that. It It is quite bracing um, as a moment. And I think it does take you out of the 80s because the whole music video thing is, is definitely part of that. But the actual dance sequence um, with Bacon definitely took me out of, of the whole period in which this was made. So it, it's definitely got a lot going for it. Um, but the script does feel a little bit plodding. Um, and I... I kind of thought that it forgot about Ren for a long time. Um, 
And then there was this scene near the end with his uh, with his mother, and it's almost like the film suddenly remembered that he was actually the main character. Um, because it seems like there's a lot of business with uh, Laurie Singer and Ariel's family, family kind of get dominates the narrative in the middle of the movie. Um, and that gets a little bit repetitive. So I thought the film was like the script was a little bit uh, not sure where it was heading from one scene to the next. Mm-hmm. I, I agree. I think so. But I think that it basically it creates a world that, you know, the characters feel like real people you know who've got real struggles and like even the laurie singer subplot you know she's she's involved in this very uh tempestuous slash abusive relationship and there was a sense just from the scenes between her and her boyfriend before kevin kevin bacon turns up in town that you know that's the life she's destined to leave lead as a sort of abused woman basically you know and she's destined to grow up and, and be a housewife she of course bristles against that she wants to go away to college and you know broaden her her mind, but I think those interactions between her and her boyfriend, and also just Laurie Singer's performance, she's really sort of pugnacious, and and um, you know she's not she's not this um, she's not going to be belittled or not you know when she gets knocked down she gets back up and throws sand in in the boyfriend's face, um, yeah. and I think the, just that attention to character detail to to make a character who might on the page have been a quite sort of flat damsel in distress creation who needs liberating but actually between Herbert Ross and Laurie Singer's performance they make that character come alive and so I was as uh, engaged and and caught up in her potential liberation uh, as I was in anybody else and you know the the Bacon characters. Yeah I really um, was drawn mainly to her character as well and it also had to do with the fact that early in the film I thought I kind of understood what tropes were going on. I thought that Sarah Jessica Parker's character was like the, you know, shuttled aside best friend who the boys don't notice because she doesn't have the kind of outward um, beauty or whatever as, as Ariel. And then Kevin Bacon would at first be attracted to Ariel, but eventually he would realize that she's not the right girl and he'd eventually uh, realize it's Sarah Jessica Parker all along. And when the film didn't go in that direction and revealed the depth to Ariel's character and, like you were saying, her bristling against her destiny, um, it was a it was really a surprise to me and a good one. And so I was mainly focused on her. And honestly, I agree that the film kind of forgets about Ren for a while, but I didn't mind because he wasn't the most interesting character to mm. me. So I was quite happy to follow Ariel's destiny and John Lithgow's change. Um, I was quite happy with that. I didn't really need that scene where he confesses to his mother his motivation for following through with this. I didn't really need that. I accepted that his motivation was, hey, this is a bad law. This town needs to be liberated. Let's do it. I, I didn't need any backstory to understand his motivation there. Uh, shall we start with the theme song? Mm. Uh, two songs nominated from Footloose. That it's a bit of a banger, this one. <laughs> yeah, it's. Mm. I mean, I, of all of the mo- of all of these films, this one starts with such a bang that 
all of the nitpicking that we're that we do isn't enough almost to make that smile go away from my face just from watching that opening credits sequence is so lively and just sets such a great tone for the film and the song is so banging that yeah the rest of the film maintains that energy i think quite well and the way the song bookends the film is a great way to structure it yeah, I agree. I, I, I think um, there's always been a slight confusion uh, with the opening. So the opening of Footloose and the opening of David Bowie's Modern Love are so close that when one of those songs come on comes on daytime radio, as it often does, you never know which one you're going to get, I think. Um, so there was a lot of confusion uh, back when this song was first being played on the radio. I think So I think Footloose is... Uh, I think it's a really good song. I think of the two songs that are nominated... This is the this is the rock song for straight boys. You know, it has that twangy guitar, which is very country. And actually, when they did the re- remake, Blake Shelton did the cover version. So it, it comes from a place of country, and it, it, it's a it's a it's a rock song for straight boys. It's it's guitar and it's keyboards. Um, it's not necessarily a, a song that's going to make straight boys dance, uh, as anyone's seen. Uh, uncles dancing to it at a wedding could probably testify, um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I think I think this is this is the sort of conventional uh, country rock song, and I think let's hear it for the boy. The Denise Williams song is uh, is something a bit more discoy and high energy, and I, I think they complement each other in different ways because it's almost like the two halves of the American Songbook coming together in the course of this uh, movie to sort of ferment revolution <laughs> revolutionary activity which is i guess what the what the film is all about it's about you know music overcoming the status quo as it were yeah that, that's a really interesting way of looking at it actually yeah i was i was getting major woody uh, buddy holly vibes with with the footloose mm. um and then but then denise williams is just all out pop and, and that's really what the 80s would become about um from yeah. this point. But I mean, I prefer the latter, but they're both absolute tunes. Mm. Yeah, the Footloose is the one that what you're saying about how this could be made in any decade, and Footloose, I could absolutely see this song being written and performed in the fifties, in like the yeah. birth of rock and roll era. The rest of the songs are absolutely eighties, like it, it really <laughs> sets you in the eighties. <laughs> but this one is pretty timeless almost um and just yeah the the driving country twang kind of beat yeah this this could have been made with um elvis presley in the lead and this could have been this the theme song almost unchanged and yeah let's hear it for the boys just kind of a um a nice uh, accompaniment to a montage whereas this footloose i can't see really on a montage at least as quick cutting yeah, and that scene, the let's hear it for the boy, is that when he's teaching the the guy to dance? Chris Penn and yeah. Kevin Bacon dancing <laughs> on tra- tractors, which is a, a sort of legendary scene. Because I, so for a while, you know, there have been people who speculated that, that Footloose is um, a, a canonically queer work, because Dean Pitchford is openly gay. Um, mm. And this was, you know, and the moment between Kevin Bacon and Chris Penn dancing on tractors has been claimed as this sort of um, like a, a closet gay scene, I guess, you know, in the middle of this thoroughly heterosexual mainstream American movie. But the thing is, I, I think, I mean, there are good reasons, but I mean, Let's Hear It For The Boy is high energy, it's disco, and I think we 
sometimes forget the extent to which disco was reviled in america you know in the, in the late mm. 70s it was very much an underground it's not like you know nowadays you can go and get a, a compilation album of this great disco tunes down at the local bp garage or whatever you know it was properly reviled to the extent that, that people used to burn disco records um it, oh, yes. it, and yeah. you know the, i think by the time let's hear it for the boy goes into the chart you know comes off this song and goes into the charts and becomes a huge hit everywhere uh, disco has kind of been absorbed by the mainstream, and I, it, it's not quite the threat it once was. But there's still something interesting about the way disco has gone from being this sort of outsider thing to suddenly being uh, at the very heart of the mainstream, being you know number one, number two on the Billboard chart, or whatever the song was. Um, but it sounds day glow. I mean, it, it, it's like the theme tune to any Jane Fonda workout video, or it, it's very much <laughs> of that moment, you know. And it just happens they're working out on tractors rather than in a yoga class or whatever. Um, but it's, it, it's, it's, yeah, it's great. Um, I, I've, I've always quite liked that song, and it, it's, it's another one of those songs that just puts a smile on your face. I think. Yeah, the yeah tra- sure. the, I enjoyed the tractor race scene as well, which does feel like a. A sort of throwback to Greece. Um, <laughs> yes. And, and, you know, the, uh, the car race in Greece. Um, but, yeah, I don't really get the why people were so um, hateful of disco. Um, but the Academy did like disco. And um, I believe Donna Summer uh, did win an Oscar for Last Dance in the late 70s. So the Academy were quite friendly to that genre, I think, Le- more so than the audience. I think it was. I mean, it, it was. It was a cultural thing that disco was was in the clubs in cities and everywhere else. It was either rock or country on the on the radio. I mean, America. There was a kind of an apartheid in place in terms of American radio in the late seventies, uh, where you you know there were white art, uh, white channels that played white music or white artists, and there were black channels that played black artists, black music. And it was almost like never the twain shall meet. So you could have a number one single on the Billboard R&B charts, um, something like Atomic Dog by George Clinton, and it would not get anywhere near the top 100 Billboard chart. Probably. I mean, obviously, Billboard has this weird system whereby it has like six million charts, um, but the main, you know, they would they would they would feature on a specialist chart, but not get into the the main chart proper because they weren't getting the airplay on the bulk of the stations which were white-owned, white-operated, playing white music to a largely white demographic. Um, so th- there was a sort of revolution. This is a sort of revolutionary moment, I think, in American um, music because, you know, Michael Jackson just crossed over. Prince, who I'm sure we'll discuss in due course, he was he was crossing over into the mainstream. Um, MTV played a big part in that by putting black artists Eventually, it, it took a little while. Um, there was some resistance there, but all of a sudden, you know, um, particularly Michael Jackson, you know, he once he broke through, he opened a, a, a path for other artists to come through in his wake. So it was now perfectly possible for a mainstream record to have the sound of disco, which you know, a song that probably would have been burnt in that terrible night at that baseball stadium where uh, <laughs> yeah. a, a thousand, you know, however many thousand white people came onto the field and started burning their disco records. I, I was going to extreme... bring that up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it, it just one of those, it, it's like something you see in history books about Nazi Germany, but it happened less than 50 years ago in, in modern, supposedly liberal America. It's an, it was an extraordinary 
um, horrific thing. But, but it, like you say, it was be- because there was this split between the cities and the country um, and the wider country. And, and you know, so, some of that is clearly racism and homophobia. You know, the fact that disco did mm-hmm. have a large black gay following, you know. Um, but yeah, I, I think, you know, by 1984, everything had kind of been absorbed and people were a little bit, little bit more comfortable you know, and I just think you know, you put either of these songs, and you put Kenny Loggins' "Footloose" on, which is as white as as rock comes, <laughs> or you put "Let's Hear It for the Boy" on at a disco, and people get up and dance. And I think that's you know, that the truth is in the dancing, as Kevin Bacon might say. I was just gonna say the disco demolition night. Um, I only I remember. I don't remember it. I wasn't alive, but. Um... I think of it as a good thing because these, it was a double header between the White Sox and my hometown team, the Detroit Tigers, and the fans destroyed the field so much that the White Sox had to forfeit the game. So it was a win for Detroit. <laughs> it gets so tribal sports, doesn't it? Yes, it does. <laughs> I was going to make another point about um, Flashdance, which is you've got all these artists, Kenny Loggins, Dean Pitchford, Denise Williams... Uh, Herbert Ross, people who are not necessarily regarded as the the great geniuses of their profession, but people who were competent professionals who knew how to put on a show, um, and they came together and they they created Footloose. I mean, I I do think looking back now um, from the position that we're in, that Hollywood could do with a few more of those. You know, competent pros, people who just know how to get the job done, put on a show, give you a good hundred minutes in the in the movie theater or at home on the sofa. And then you know, get out your way or whatever. Um, but yeah, yeah I, I I miss competency. That was my message. <laughs> All right, we ready for Ghostbusters? Yeah. Mm. Ghostbusters, um, massive hit, massive. Um, and it seems like they really wanted it to be a hit, and like particularly the marketing around the film was um, very geared towards involving the audience and. Um, I read that there was um, an 800 number to call and once you called it, you'd get like an answering machine message from uh, Ackroyd and Bill Murray saying, you know, they were out catching ghosts or something. But I think it was really popular at the time. Um, so it does. It did feel like um, the, the, they wanted to involve the audience as much as possible and that clearly paid off. In terms of the comedy... Um, it does feel very on the Mel Brooks level of comedy. Um, it's kind of like satirizing the paranormal f- for laughs, but I-, I had a blast of a time watching this. I thought it was really funny. Yeah. Was this your first time watching it? Yeah. I, th- I think I'd seen like certain scenes before, but never the entirety of it. Wow. It's interesting that you thought of it as satire because Dan Aykroyd absolutely believes in ghosts. And his his original idea for this and his original drafts were so dense with ghost lore and ghost quote unquote facts. No, he he is full on into it. Um, and he says he's said he's based some incidents on act again quote unquote actual events witnessed by friends and by other ghost hunters. Um, yeah, I, I'm not sure he intended it as satire. Maybe it just comes across <laughs> like that to sane people. But um, 
I, I actually I think his father was actually kind of an amateur ghost hunter. Medium, yeah, I think he's a yeah. medium and, and was quite well known wow. in Canada for yeah, yeah, yeah. So it runs in the family. Mm. But in terms of the comedy, I mean, yeah, it's it's a great comedy, and you got you got Bill Murray and Harold Ramis and Dan Aykroyd kind of at the height of their game together, and just they work really well together in this film. Um, and they just and of course Bill Murray is just Bill Murray; he's always brilliant. I think I haven't seen him everything he's done, but everything I've seen him in at least. And I think also that there is that thing that this movie came out at a time where the male heroes of American cinema were sliced alone and Arnold Schwarzenegger, and there is something inherent inherently subversive about the fact you've got schlubby, doughy, nerdy men uh, running around New York being the heroes for once, and you know all of them. Uh, towered over by Sigourney Weaver, um, so the, the, there's a there's a degree of fun just in the casting alone that you've got these men who don't look like the kind of heroes that mainstream Hollywood were pushing that much at the at the time. Um, I think famously, you know, it was it was a bit of a kickball scramble production. You know, they, they were rushing to meet a summer release date because this was going to be Sony's big uh, summer blockbuster and. So Dan Aykroyd was constantly rewriting the script and the, the effects, there, were, there was panic over whether the effects were going to be completed by the, the, by the release date. So there's an element of scrappiness in that. I mean, there's certainly certain scenes that could probably do with a little bit of tonal reworking. I mean, the scene where the famous scene where Dan Aykroyd appears to be getting oral sex from a ghost um, <laughs> which raises raises so many questions um, but you know the fact you get away with that in a PG or 12 you know it would have been PG 13 I think um, comedy uh, says a lot as to what you know what people got away with that but I think the effects work pretty well you know Slimer is, has become this you know fan favorite um, I think the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man as a, as a final real villain um as an antagonist is um pretty impressive um and also i think there's a sense that they were letting the audience in on the fun i mean it's always struck me as very um symbolic that that film ends with the toasting of marshmallows on a, on an epic scale it is it is mm-hmm. that level of you know intimate fun between the performers and the audience there's a kind of degree of knowingness about it but also a lot of it is just analog you know the scene where the ground opens up outside Sigourney Weaver's apartment is an analog effect um so you know this is this is a blockbuster from a time where blockbusters weren't just overly reliant on computer effects and visual effects it, it sort of blends everything in pretty well so yeah, I've, I've always found it um a, 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 an enjoyable film i remember enjoying it huge amounts as a kid watching it on vhs and whenever i've gone back to it um in later life it, it is a bit scrappy and it's a bit rough around the edges but um it's still funny and it's still entertaining i think mm-hmm. i think that adds to the charm of it right the scrappiness of it yeah and and of course yeah. you're right. These are these are three characters who in a Schwarzenegger film would be the nerdy help who got murdered mm. and you know around the second act turn um because they'd outlived their usefulness and now it's time to kick ass to truly win. Um and yeah, it it, it is wonderful to see us kind of the subversion of that. Um I was quickly going to mention about the ghost uh, fellatio scene. 
that's an that's another <laughs> is that what is that what we're calling it now ghost for i guess okay. you could <laughs> um <laughs> that was originally a much longer sequence which it would kind of explain why he's dressed in like the 18th century french kind of outfit I don't think there's any way to completely explain it, but that kind of explains it. They were um, ghost hunting in a mansion, like a derelict mansion, and to get into character of the time period, they dressed in that outfit, and then they fall asleep, and a ghost comes and, and blows Dan Aykroyd. And for some reason, Dan Aykroyd was absolutely married to this moment. He had to have it in the scene, in the film. So they cut away all the context and made it a dream sequence, but he had to have it in the film. And he that was one of his things. He said he's known people who have been sexually pleasured by ghosts, and it's absolutely a thing that happens, and we need to show that. Oh my word! I'm I'm so glad you guys wow. mentioned that because I was writing notes on this film. Can can I say can I say I'm not glad that we brought this up? I never never want to speak of it again. I was writing notes on this film, and the first two words I put were "ghost blowjob!" Exclamation mark! Brilliant, absolutely brilliant. I don't know how they got away with that, but I I guess he's you know he was lucky it wasn't one of the green monsters. Um, yeah, <laughs> it like with the whole nerd angle, the fact that they are geeks, it does kind of feel like maybe the whole ass kicking Neanderthal thing is is going out of fashion, and it is kind of about technology is the way forward. Like people kind of with brains and gadgets and things like that. So mm-hmm. in that way, it it feels like a new type of hero. Um, but I. I wanted to mention the environmentalists because we didn't mention it with Against All Odds, but they were not portrayed in a very good light in that film. And in this film, they're seen as the enemy again. And I kind of was thinking, you know, what was it about America that really didn't like environmentalists at this point? <laughs> Only at this point? You well, it's good. It's, it... <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it? Isn't it to do with the the hairspray involved in nineteen eighties film production? That actually, you know, the, the environmentalists wanted to take away the uh, L'Oreal and the um, yeah, they wanted to you know stop people making huge holes in the ozone. But in order to get that bouffant hair that we um, so delight in mocking in eighties show, they had to use a hell of a lot of hairspray. I think that's what it is. They wanted to take the hairspray away. Yeah. <laughs> um. <laughs> Shall we get on to the song, um, yeah. which mm. the inspiration uh, for the song might be um, slightly controversial? Uh, <laughs> I don't like plagiarists. <laughs> well, you go ahead, Chris, because you're the Huey Lewis fanatic. <laughs> I don't say fanatic, I just, you know... <laughs> I think it's pretty glaringly obvious where the inspiration for this song came from. Um, and the film, the editors of the film have admitted to using I Want a New Drug as kind of a reference point when they were editing it. And when they gave the rough cut to Ray Parker Jr. for him to write the song, it still had I Want a New Drug on it. So, you know, I don't see it as a huge leap. Did he intentionally sit down and say well i've got the melody now all i need is the lyrics and no one will notice no i don't think that but 
I do think that Huey Lewis was right to assume that his song had been, you know, copied just a little bit. Well, like, I think um, Ray Parker Jr. said that he was, he got his inspiration from this drain cleaning uh, commercial at sort of like 5am. He'd, he'd stayed up all night. So I'm just wondering if he's like so delirious at that point, he actually thinks that I want a new drug is his own work by that point. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. <laughs> and he actually went to court, didn't it? And um, yep. you know, the the producers lost the lawsuit. So yeah, clearly, not alone. In Chris, you're not alone in defending Huey Lewis. That he was he was properly robbed here. Yeah. Well, it's funny because it it resulted in a settlement. Um, that included a non-disclosure ag- agreement, as they often do. And apparently in around 2000 or so, Huey Lewis revealed some details of the settlement. So Roy Parker Jr. sued him, and he <laughs> he ended up getting some money back as a result of Huey Lewis violating the non-disclosure agreement. So it was a whole back and forth. They probably broke even in the end. Like legal tennis. Yep, yep. It's a proper vendetta. <laughs> The, the the big controversy for me and for many of my contemporaries at the time, we were all very disappointed because I think there was a, there was a delay in this film coming out in the UK. So the we got the song before the movie came out, and if you watched the song on top of the pops or whatever the music show was at the time, the video features a whole bunch of celebrities: John Candy, Chevy Chase, Peter Falk from Columbo. Um, uh, Danny DeVito and I think there was an assumption that all these celebrities who were singing along to Ghostbusters and DeVito were then going to feature in the film so there was a level of uh, expectations were being raised that couldn't possibly be met by the final by the final film so that was always the, the sort of sticking point for uh, my generation I think that, that the video set up expectations that the movie couldn't deliver on oh, that's interesting <laughs> I've never seen this video Oh, it's a, yeah. I mean, it's a, it, it is a, it is a star laden video. There is a, you know, it's not just the 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 main actors in the movie who turn up, but various New York uh, glitterati. I think is the phrase. <laughs> wow. In terms of the song, I think um, it, it's not one of those songs that expands the American songbook. Great. I mean, le- it's been legally proven not to expand the American songbook, but it, I think it is. It it's one of those big hits that nobody's grown sick of in the year, you know, in the years since. And I think there are, there are a lot of number one and number two records that um, people over time have just got sick of hearing on the radio. But I don't think this is one of them. I think this is one of those songs that does put the smile on back on your face if you hear it on the radio or if you're at the we- if you're at a wedding reception, it gets people up on the dance floor. So I think it, it, it functions on that level. Uh, people haven't... I mean, Huey, Huey Lewis may have an entirely different um, response to it, but I think the rest <laughs> of us... Uh, for the rest of us, it, it, it's it's one of those movie, uh, one of those songs from a movie that nobody has got sick of. And also, it does it is a song that makes you want to go and see a film about men busting ghosts. Very true. Yeah, I think for for me, this kind of most encompasses what the idea of an original song is, um, in the mm. sense that this couldn't possibly work if you put it in any of the other films. Um, whereas I think potentially the others could bar Footloose because um, it's the name of the film. But uh, I think um, this is kind of, for me, this feels the most original 
But I know that um, me and Chris were talking last night about uh, we weren't sure how to judge this and um, is, it, <laughs> is it the song that we like the best or is it the most original song? Or So we might have very yeah. different ideas of, of what, when we come to rank these, why we're ranking them like that. I think I think it certainly it captures the spirit of the movie in a way I don't necessarily think any of the others, with the possible exception of Footloose, uh, the song captures you know it, it it bottles the essence of that film, and I think you know the Ray Parker Jr. song bottles the essence of the, it. It's it's basically a song that's saying if you go and see this movie, you're going to have a good time, as you had a good time listening to this record. Um, so I think yeah, in terms of capturing the essence of a movie, I think it's 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 efficient on that level. Mm-hmm. If if that's how we're judging it, songs, efficiency, it's a very efficient song. It is the most efficient, I would say, of all five. Yes. <laughs> Make sure you don't forget the name of the film. <laughs> so all of these songs are lost to. Um... I just called to say I love you by Stevie Wonder from The Woman in Red, um, which was directed and written for the screen by Gene Wilder. How did we feel about this movie? Well, I whispered this very quietly, but I had um, a reasonably good time with it. I'd not seen it before. Um, I was aware that it was a pretty substantial hit at the time. I'm not going to make any claims that it's a lost classic by any means, uh, but I chuckled consistently, and I can kind of see why it was a why it was such a crowd pleaser. I mean, it's a remake of a late '70s sex comedy, Pardon Mon Affair, by Yves Robert, and some of it just doesn't translate. You know, the idea that everyone in San Francisco is having an affair, um, I just didn't buy at all. And for a long while, it's very skittish, it's very broken backed, but it keeps. For me, it kept throwing up these sort of odd, eccentric, funny situations like um, Gene Wilder coming home and meeting his daughter's boyfriend, who's a Jewish punk who turns into a sex pest. Um, this is the only film, this is certainly the only film that's ever been nominated for an Oscar that features a Gene Wilder makeover montage, which, you know, it's almost worth tracking down for that alone, <laughs> which involves flattening his hair and putting him in this awful white leisure suit. Um, and I think that actually... The, the real, and this may be one of those things where I just went in with low expectations, but I expected a kind of base note of chauvinism, given that it was based on a 70s French sex farce. And I don't think it sort of fully... It doesn't entirely lean into its chauvinism. I think the joke is on the men who are being led around by their nether regions. And I think the women actually come out of it pretty well. Kelly LeBrock, who was sort of, you know, this ultimate 80s, early 80s pin-up, um, is tr- is regarded and gazed upon as sort of comically beautiful, and I think there's something sort of funny and, and sort of innocent about the way that the movie. It could have been a lot more leering, I think. Um, but the the idea, and it's quite a funny idea that you know here is here's a, here is a human being who shouldn't even be sharing the same planet as Gene Wilder, let alone the same waterbed. Um, and Gilda Radner, the great Gilda Radner, in a supporting role as one of Gene Wilder's colleagues who has this whole subplot to herself, basically, and manages to be almost, by a country mile, the funniest thing in the film, as a woman who, when she gets rattled, breaks into German for no apparent reason, and then spends the rest of the movie trying to make Gene Wilder's life hell. And Gene Wilder and and, uh, Gilda Radner were a real-life couple, a real-life couple at at that time. 
Um, and you sense that those two having a, a whole bunch of fun, although I'm sure, you know, the, the plot of the film, Gene Wilder considering having an affair, but not actually following through with it. Um, the, yeah, there, there might have been some interesting conversations on the drive home from the set, I would have thought. Yeah. Um, and I I don't know. I, I also went into it with pretty low expectations. I mean, I love Gene Wilder and I love him in this. He's very funny. And there are some individual moments of comedy, especially involving, like you said, Gilda Radner. But in, in general, I haven't seen the French show um, film that it's based on, but I have seen Ten, which deals with a very similar subject, a middle-aged yeah. man mm. deciding to have an affair and ultimately, you know, not finding it as uh, fulfilling as he wanted. And that's a much better examination of this theme i think so i i was kind of constantly watching it as kind of a lesser version of 10 um and i guess the seeing it through that lens it never really caught on for me um and there were a lot of moments that were just too silly um to even get through and take it seriously and also the calendar but i won't get into that because we don't have time (laughs) oh go on (laughs) Mention the calendar. This comes up a lot on this podcast. Yeah, Caleb knows this, but I hate it when films get calendars wrong. Um, and it bothers me even more when it's a professionally... It's obviously a professionally made calendar. Like, they had someone print that October 1984 calendar, and it's wrong. Hmm. It's so completely wrong, and it's so easy. They made this in late 1983, so there were 1984 <laughs> calendars available at that time that they could have just bought, but instead they made one wrong. Why? Ugh. There was there was too much money, too much money fly, flying around yeah. on the set of 80s movies. Oh, you, we'll just print up our own calendar, it's fine. Yeah, yeah. Oh, dear. Let's, uh, let's move on, I'm upsetting myself. <laughs> I, I will agree with you that it, it's not remotely profound at all about, you know, relationships or anything. And, it, and actually the, the film that it, it made me think of all the way through was The Heartbreak Kid, the Elaine May uh, movie, mm. which I think it genuinely has things to say about men and, and their relationships with women, and, and it's quite insightful. I don't think this. I think yeah. this is just a sort of knockabout thing. But on the level of uh, on the level of silly knockabout, there's there's a kind of precision to a handful of its scenes that made me chuckle, and I was kind of I, I had a, a reasonable time with it. Yeah, it manages to be moral without being too judgmental, which I think is mm. one of its one of its strengths. And um, it's almost like I kind of like the idea that the lead character is a guy that wants to have an affair but is too moral to be able to do it. Um, and it's it's you know it's kind of it's very midlife crisis ish, um, but you know he's he's kind of a bit of a hypocrite because he's criticizing um, Joey's infidelities. Um, through his own frustration that he can't do that um, so I found that kind of interesting but really the, the film is, is just kind of a bit silly I think the funniest bit for me apart from the haircut was the bit where he's in the bath pretending that he's so upset he's got to go to the conference I was mm-hmm. <laughs> that was hysterical for me that was very funny Um yeah, almost, almost like the funniest stuff is the stuff that spins off from the main plot, not the main plot itself. There were, you know, the, the minor characters and the supporting characterizations are, are almost 
consistently funnier than what's going on, you know, whether or not Gene will get it together with Kelly LeBrock or whatever. Um, but yeah, it, it, it sort of has that strange sort of riffing quality that I think comes through in later Judd Apatow comedies. You know, um, I think there's the kind of the roots of something that would be elongated by Judd Apatow into these two and a half hour comedies. You know, it's all there in The Woman in Red, I think. And this was Kelly LeBrock's first film, but she has hardly been prolific since then. Um... I have to say, she I mean, she holds the screen far better in this, I think, than she does in Weird Science, where she's basically just offered up as a sort of teenage boy's wank fantasy, um, which always did strike me, you know, I think even as a teenage boy, I probably sort of mm. thought that was a little bit odd. Um, whereas here, you know, I mean, it, she is a billboard model in the film. You know, she's there to be looked at. Um, the, this, the, certainly her scenes with Wilder are handled in a, shall we say, gentlemanly way. They're not sort of leering in a way that, you know, there might be had they been filmed in the 90s or the noughties, I think. I wanted to mention the Charles Grodin character um, turning out to be gay, which was quite surprising. Um I felt like that was quite a normalising portrayal for 1984. It really kind of... uh, Mm. I just found that quite progressive in general. I know um, I think Wilder was good friends with him off screen. Um, But it was just caught me by surprise when that scene happens where the guy comes and you you kind of find out. you, You kind of think, oh, okay, that's what's going on. So, yeah, personally, I thought that was quite progressive. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I think it's it, it, it was very surprising for 1984, given the level of uh, homophobia that was baked into certain mainstream movies at the time. Um, and I think it's, it, it, I mean, it, after that there after that revelation, Charles Grodin is really a plot device. But in terms of how it's handled in the in the moment, I think it's it's quite smartly and sensitively done. Um, so yeah, it did just a little moment in the middle of all this madcap silliness that makes you think, yeah, actually, you know, this is a film that's kind of been made by semi-sentient human beings. <laughs> you know, it's not just it's 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 not just a factory product. You know, someone's actually thought about this, and it, it is. A, it, I mean, overall, the film is a strange mix of the slapdash and the thoughtful. Um, I can kind of see why it's disappeared off people's radar. You know, it's never screened on terrestrial TV anymore. But uh, yeah, I, 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 equally, I could see why audiences seem to have such a fun time with it. Um, in that it is, you know, kind of light and breezy, and and certainly not, like I say, not as leering or as chauvinistic or as hashtag problematic as I thought it might well be going in. What about Stevie Wonder then? Any big Stevie Wonder <laughs> fans in the room? I think we're all Stevie fans. I I just don't know whether we're fans of this particular song. I mean, that's always been the big debate. I mean, it's sort of thrown away in the movie, um, rather artlessly, over the scene in which Gene Wilder literally makes a phone call, (laughs) runs across an airport and makes a phone call. Uh, You know, say what you see, soundtracking. Um, I think it's clear that this is not the Stevie Wonder of Superstition and Living for the City. Um, It also has, uh, as I think Radcliffe and McConey, the... BBC Six DJs have pointed out the most shocking ending of any number one record of the 1980s. If you listen to the last 10 seconds of this song, it really is like 
hearing uh, a studio at five to five on a Friday afternoon where the musicians are fed up and just want to knock off. Uh, how are we going to finish this track, Stevie? Oh, I'll just play do, do, do. That, that'll do. And also play do, do, do on that keyboard, which is the tinniest keyboard that was on any <laughs> 1980s. I mean, it really does. You'd think by this point in his career, Stevie Wonder could have, uh, afford to invest in some proper equipment. This looks like he's gone and got some 2499 keyboard from Argos and is sat there playing it. It's a John Shuttleworth keyboard. Um, and it is, I mean, it, it, it will always be shocking to me that this song, of all Stevie Wonder songs, this song is his best-selling single of all time. I really don't, I'm not a fan. No, me neither. Yeah, I'm I'm with you there. Um and yeah, not only is it artlessly included in the soundtrack, it's not even there in its entirety. It's just the bridge. Like we hear the bridge during the film and then it's not even the main credits song. We get the main credits song and then the bridge again and we're done. And to me that kind of disqualifies it from this category because we don't even get the whole song in the movie and it's completely inconsequential to the movie all the rest of the songs like we've been talking about really fit in either as an as an anthem for the film or as a reflection of the themes or something this one is just one of many songs on the soundtrack and it's not even close to being the best song on the soundtrack um yeah, I, I don't understand it, its popularity or why it won so many Best Original Song Awards, because I think it won the BAFTA as well, or, or the Golden Globe, I think. Golden Globe, yeah. Yeah. That's right, yeah. Yeah. Golden Globe. I think Ghostbusters won the BAFTA. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. But I, I, it, this, for me, is the most dated. Sounds the most dated, and it... I mean, Superstition is a tune. Superstition would would win this for me against the other songs if it was that. Um, But for me, this just feels very pedestrian uh, for Stevie. Um, But he did write the entire soundtrack. There was a... Was the one called "Don't Drive Drunk"? Don't drive drunk. Yes, when where, yeah, which which is over a scene of Gene Wilder in a car that's been badly beaten up in an accident. So at least we learn something from that song. I don't know what we learn in uh, in in. I just called to say I love you. Yeah. Other than the order of the dates in the year, um, mm. but you know, I, yeah, I did. I, I what can you say? And also, you know, there were a couple of collaborations with Dionne Warwick. Um, I think uh, the opening song is a duet between Stevie and. Dion, and that's actually, I think, a, a, a better song in its own right than yeah. than what we got. So yeah, they they For did sure. Dion work wrong. Yeah, I thought that the title track was would have made more sense in this category. I don't know if it would win, but it makes more sense. Okay, so we got some listener questions this week. Um, first up, we've got Catherine Short. How do you feel about the use of the iconic Footloose theme song? in the 2011 remake of the film and how do we feel about that film as a whole? Has anyone seen it? No. No, I haven't. No, um, no, it sort of passed me by, although I, I have, I went and read the reviews for it. Um, and I, I gather, actually, the the reviews were pretty good for, on the whole. You know, people, I think, again, people had fairly low expectations of a remake of an 80s teen movie. Um, and they were quite surprised that it works perfectly well, which I think, I hope, proves my point that this song could work in any particular era. 
I think my issue with the remake is that whatever the remake said about America in 2011 when it came out, if they'd held back and remade Footloose in 2016, 2017, when the divide between city and country was so vast, then you're on to yeah. something really, you know, really well. I think I, I gather from, from what I've read that it was a, a perfectly functional, you know, pop remake of, of the original. Um, and also the the cover version, which is done by, like I say, by Blake Shelton, it just brings out the countryness that was lurking in the Kenny Loggins version all along. Um, again, it's a it's a it's a straight guy with a guitar, not not just a guitar, a guitar, <laughs> um, and yeah, making it work for him. So yeah, I I just think this is one of those stories that would work. Um, one of the things that actually struck me yesterday re- rewatching it, um, I put a question out on Twitter you know, whether. Uh, it had been remade in India, in Bollywood, because it would strike me that this is something that would translate um, to India particularly well. Obviously, the music and the dancing, whatever, but also the the sense of uh, the divide between big city and small town and the differing attitudes of, of the respective populaces. Um, so I think the, we will probably see... I mean, you could even say that Billy Elliot is like the British footloose. There's a there's, there's certain degree to which that's a translation. So it, it's almost like this is like latter day mythic folklore um, that that we're we're doomed to repeat. But hopefully we learn something from. Yeah, and the remix um, directed by Craig Brewer, who did um, Black Snake Morn and Hustle and Floor. So that's a pretty good, mm. pretty good pedigree. Um, so yeah, I just didn't. It wasn't top of my list in 2011. Put it that way. But maybe I'll track it down. Maybe this so this will be my evening's viewing. Now I can go and watch rewatch or watch the remake with uh, fresh eyes. <laughs> I think we might have to all listen to um, songs in the key of life as penance uh, for, <laughs> for, for, for just to Stevie. drive out the awfulness. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, Catherine says, on another note, why do you think that the villains in Footloose are fans of Pink Floyd? Which I didn't realize. Um. <laughs> um, I, I didn't. I mean, the only evidence I could see of that that I can remember was I think that the bully's truck. I think he had a Dark Side of the Moon sticker on it, um, but. We never hear any Floyd on the soundtrack, and we never actually see any other Floyd references. I mean, they were maybe they were fans because Pink Floyd is a great band, and they like Pink Floyd. Um, I, I'm not sure if there's any deeper meaning to him being a Floyd fan. Isn't it just in the mythology of pop music that every generation has to react against what came before it? So, you know, Pink mm. Floyd, sort of late seven, well, sort of 70s, um, they were sort of fading out. I mean, obviously, the war would have been eighty-one or something like that. So they were still very much going and present. But I think they were regarded as uh, almost like an institution that had to be rebelled against. So you know, Kenny Loggins and, and Kevin Bacon, with their new fangled '80s sound, were coming to sweep the uh, the dust of '70s prog rock out of the American system or something like that. So I think yeah, it's a, it's a throwaway thing. I would have thought also a lot of people would have had uh, Dark Side of the Moon stickers on their trucks in the '70s, given the numbers uh, that that LP shifted. So you know they were 
they were pretty... It'd be like making a British teen movie in 1984 and having them all rebel against Queen, I think, you know. Yeah. Um, or doing it now with Coldplay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I mean that, that, is, that is the story of pop that one generation you know, responds to what came forward and goes in a completely different direction, which is why, you know, after the, the cheeky, chappy, ironic, irony-heavy Britpop, you get Travis and Coldplay, you know, sincere, heart-on-their-sleeves singer-songwriters um, who don't seem to be making jokes or running around uh, in a country house or whatever. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it, it's just a generational... It's like a, a sort of... But, it, again, it's it's another little detail in that movie that someone has paid attention to on set, and um, it, it, it does sort of factor into the storytelling somehow, I think. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I don't think it's um, saying anything about the characters. I think, like, if anything, um, Pink Floyd were politically quite positive in the whole another brick in the wall um, railing against the uh, corporal punishment and skills and that so I don't think it's maybe it is just a, a way of saying these people are a bit behind the times but mm. um, lastly uh, another Footloose question very popular today <laughs> Footloose um, the, foot, the Footloose <laughs> fans have been out in force <laughs> yeah. uh, Andrew Carden asks did any of the other Footloose original songs um, i.e. Almost Paradise or Holding Out for a Hero deserve nominations I've said very positive things about Phil Collins on this uh, podcast. I think I'd probably draw the line at Bonnie Tyler. No. I think there are... There are... <laughs> uh, we're going to have a falling out about this. Um, although I, I will say this, I will, I will happily take Holding Out for a Hero above, over and above Total Eclipse of the Heart. I will give you that. Oof. <laughs> like a dagger to my heart, that Bonnie Tyler. <laughs> Is this where I need... I need to take my leave at this point, clearly. <laughs> I would have nominated holding out for a hero. I think it's a, it's a belter, um, but it's, it is the sort of thing that does get nominated, isn't it? It's yeah. it's a big, you know, full on eighties power ballad, um, and I think Bonnie can consider herself unlucky that the Academy overlooked it. But it was a, it was an incredibly competitive year that year. Yes, very high quality. I I probably would have coin flipped between holding out for a hero and let's hear it for the boy. Um, so. Maybe the other songs were... Pro- I'm sure all of them, because there were some other substantial hits in, on the soundtrack, so maybe it was a coin flip. I don't know, but I don't think I would bump them for any of the other ones. There's also a lot of Foreigner on the soundtrack, uh, Waiting for a Girl Like You. They, mm-hmm. you know, they were obviously very big in the early 80s, in America specifically. So you know, they can consider themselves unlucky that they weren't in the, uh, in the awards discussion, such as it was. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, so now the big question. Why did Stevie Wonder win this Oscar? And was it close? Mike, what do you think? I think to some degree, um, you know, he, by 1984, he'd been established as a legendary artist. He'd paid his dues. You know, this was the same ceremony where uh, Peggy Ashcroft won an acting Oscar. There is a degree to which Stevie Wonder is the Peggy Ashcroft of pop. <laughs> You know, someone who's been around a while, paid the view, who's a, who's a sort of known property, and who is considered as someone who delivers uh, efficient quality pop. Um, I, you know, he's he's clearly better known than the 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 Flashdance, um, Flashdance. Sorry, the 
clearly better known than the Footloose contingent, Loggins, Pitchford, Williams. He's better known, I think, in 1984 than Phil Collins, who didn't even get to perform Against All Odds on Oscar night because the producers were unaware of Phil Collins' work, which is an extraordinary fact. But, you know, they got the, the producers got Anne Reinking to come up and lip sync to it instead. If you go on YouTube, you can see it. Um, so he was clearly the front runner for this. I, I, you know, I, I, I've made my feelings about I just called Say I Love You known. Uh, I think it was he, he was the name pick. He was the name that people recognised most immediately. Yeah, I, I'm reeling from that likening between Stevie Wonder and Peggy Ashcroft. <laughs> That's got to be a first. <laughs> Together at last. I think it's probably that. Um, and it's weird that, yeah, um, there were some basically covers of most of the songs at the actual Oscars. Yeah, Phil Collins didn't perform Against All Odds, but... Stevie Wonder didn't do The Woman in Red either, and Footloose was performed by Debbie Allen. Um, it's, it's a weird kind of thing to have these performers. They were there, and they're like, oh, no, we're going to get mm. somebody else to do your songs. doesn't make a great deal of sense. And, yeah, I read that, that the, the producers of the show didn't recognize Phil Collins. I mean, couldn't somebody have shown them the nominations? And be like, he, he's the guy. <laughs> He's he's the actual <laughs> singer of the song, and he's going to be here. You know, I don't know. I don't get that. But <laughs> do you think that's the reason why Phil Collins started putting his own face on the front cover of his LP in <laughs> massive close-up to tell you know as a, as a you know just as he'd put a paint pot on top of his um, piano on top of the box to have a go at his wife and his wife's uh, other man that he decided to put his face on the uh, front cover of his LPs just to say to the Oscar producers this is who I am when I come back in 10 years time with a song from the soundtrack of Tarzan you better <laughs> nominate me and have me up on stage playing the damn thing yeah uh, that I imagine that's probably part of it yeah and of course, when he came back for Tarzan, he did perform it. So they they'd seen some they'd seen the album covers by then. <laughs> there you go. I think like I don't have much to add about why Stevie won the Oscar. Um, this film was a big hit, but most of the ones in this category were big hits. So I kind of think it might have been close. I know he won the Globe as well, but that's just ninety people. So I think. I think apart from Let's Hear It For The Boy, I think the other four could all have gotten quite a few votes. Is there any particular reason why Let's Hear It For The Boy wouldn't have been in 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 consideration to the same degree? I'm just thinking that it feels like a secondary song from its own film because yeah. it's, it's along with the theme song, you know? Mm. So I feel like if they were going yeah, to vote yeah, yeah. for one, they would probably vote for that one. Um yeah, but, I agree. Um, There's a clue in the title. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what do we think was snubbed? I think there's a big one, right? Or two big ones? Yeah. Basically, the in, most of the Purple Rain album, yep. I think. Um, this is one of those years where I think the whole category could have been a single artist because at, at least three songs from Purple Rain should have been in this category um and the fact that it wasn't is is kind of ridiculous they tossed at the original song score oscar which they've never given since so it doesn't even feel like a real oscar um 
Yeah, it, it's kind of shocking that nothing from Purple Rain, at least to say the title track, was not included in the song lineup. And the Golden Globes did, didn't they? They nominated When Doves Cry, which still mm-hmm. lost out to Stevie Wonder. I guess, yeah. you know, if the Oscar if the Oscar contingent found Phil Collins confusing, there was no idea, they'd have no idea what to make of someone as androgynous and avant-garde as, as Prince, I guess. Did Prince Very actually true. come up to re- receive that award for the score? I, d- I haven't seen the ceremony. I don't know, but I, I, I do like the fact that he was up against the Muppets Take Manhattan, which it's surely the only <laughs> award where Prince has gone up against Miss Piggy for a major a major gong. Yeah. And Chris Christopherson for song- songwriter. So, you know, three very different personalities in the best original song score category that year. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We mentioned Kid Creole and the Coconuts earlier, um, but they did have their their original song for Against All Odds was called My Male Curiosity which I think um, might be a more appropriate title for the film. But <laughs> uh, yeah. but I, I quite like that one. Yeah, that's quite fun. I, I love Kikri on the Cokes. My heart skipped a beat when they when they showed up in uh, against all odds. I, was, I would have been happy if they'd forgotten about the uh, Jeff Bridges, James Woods, Rachel Ward love trial and just made a movie for Kikri on the Coconuts. And of course, Kikri was being kind of mentored by Prince around this time on how to crack the American market. Um, and I think I, th- I think My Male Curiosity might have been written by Prince. I'm not entirely sure about it. But certainly Prince had written a couple of tracks for Kid Creole. So there were close links between those two artists. Um, I, would, I want to make a case for the other song that got nominated for the Golden Globes but didn't get nominated for the Oscars, which is um, mm. No More Lonely Nights by Paul McCartney. Um, I was just about which, to mention that one, yeah. If, if if that had been nominated, that would have been my own personal pick by a long shot, um, because I do have a soft spot for that kind of melancholy solo McCartney of the 1980s, where he's post, not just post Beatles, but post Wings, and trying to work out where he's going to go for the rest of his career. Um, and while I'm here, I, I want, you know, someone needs to bring out Give My Regards to Broad Street, which is the film that the, uh, the 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 film from which that song is taken. Um, if the BFI can bring out a, a lavishly um, appointed DVD of the of the Pet Shop Boys, is um, it couldn't happen here, which was again regarded as something of a vanity project by a, by a major pop star. But all we have left of uh, in circulation of Give My Regard to Broad Street is the video to No More Lonely Nights. So uh, the only information I have on that film is that it involves Ringo Starr getting involved in a boating accident. And Paul McCartney discussing uh, disturbing Ralph Richardson in the middle of the night, and I want to know what the, what the context is. So we need a DVD of uh, "Give My Regards to Broad Street," and uh, yeah, I will happily do the commentary on it. But based based purely on the video for "No More Lonely Nights," which I think is a lovely song. Yeah, I would. I agree one hundred percent. And I was gonna bring up "No More Lonely Nights" as a definite snub. Um, and I think I agree that had it been in the nominees, it probably would have been my my choice. Absolutely. And also, McCartney would have been one of one of the um, only nominees, with the exception. Uh, I mean, Prince to some degree, but he was better known amongst the young demographic than an older demographic. I would have thought Paul McCartney would have been someone who could rival Stevie Wonder for in t- in terms of uh, you know, fame and and people knowing the name. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that, Snub. Um, it does seem like this is quite a deep year for this category. Um, we've mentioned quite a few there that that would be decent 
um, in their own lineup. So, well, yeah. every major film had had a big song tagged onto it, either over the end credits or as a theme song or whatever. So, I mean, I was making a list yesterday of films that came out in this year that had major hits attached to them, and some of them are, are bigger hits than others. But you could have, in theory, you could have had Axel F by of Harold Fosmar from Beverly Hills Cop. Although I'm not quite sure what the Academy track record on instrumental songs uh, has been over the years. Um, mm. You could have had Never Ending Story, um, Georgia Murad and Phil Oakey from The Never Ending Story. Um, there was even uh, a Romancing the Stone theme tune, Romancing the Stone by Eddie Grant. and you know, That was a major hit, so uh, the film a bigger hit than the song. Uh, You're the Best by Joe Esposito, originally written for <laughs> Rocky Three, but appearing on the soundtrack, The Karate Kid, another big team movie. So it's like every major summer blockbuster or major American release that year had a song, you know, that, that was, was slapped over the end credits in the hope, hope of selling records or um, or maybe getting a, a award nominations at the end of the year. It was it was a big thing, and again, I think I sort of miss the fact that our event movies don't really have that. Um, nowadays, I would like a nice, you know, poppy number over the end credits of an Avengers movie um, <laughs> to give me something to something to listen to mm-hmm. while I'm waiting for the inevitable cut scene involving Samuel L. Jackson explaining something that's going to set up something two years down the line. <laughs> At least give me a song while I'm waiting for that scene. And we don't really. I guess Black Panther had a, had a pretty good song over the end credits, um, but it's 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 it was a commonplace in 1984, and it's something that I think the the movies have lost, and I think they've lost something with that. Yeah, it does feel like nowadays it's only Bond themes and Diane Warren, um, mm. and, not, and not much else. Uh, but yeah, and that's um, the thing, you know, these are all big pop hits. These were these were on the radio day in day out. People knew them, and often they knew the songs before they knew the movie. So it was an effective marketing tool. You know, I mentioned that Ghostbusters video and, and the expectations it set up. But the reason we had those expectations is because that that uh, video was on MTV or whatever the music channels were on top of the pops, you know, week in, week out, and we were aware of it before the film ever landed in the UK. Yeah. Um. Any wider observations on 1984? Um, the the Oscars, maybe not. The strongest quality Oscars um, for the for the films that were nominated. I think some absolute dreck was nominated. Actually, <laughs> places in the heart and the Killing Fields and the Bostonians. Um, how do you guys feel about nineteen eighty four as a year overall? I don't. I've actually haven't seen Places in the Heart yet, um, or A Soldier's Story. Um, I remember watching a passage to India as a child and being bored to tears. Um, <laughs> Peggy Ashcroft, though, yeah, yeah, the, the Stevie Wonder, the Stevie of Wonder of the, yeah. <laughs> yes. If I had thought of her that way back in the day, I might have paid more attention to the film. Um, but then, uh, yeah, the Killing Field is obviously a, a chore, and um, Amadeus, I. I haven't seen it in so long, I don't remember it very well, so I, I don't want to say anything about it. But, yeah, some questionable... I mean, the 80s were a questionable time um, for American cinema, and I think the the Academy reflected that very well in the films that it nominated. Let's put it that way. I, it struck me that, we, you know, we're, we got the sort of the uh, frivolity and fun in discussing best song rather than best picture. It does seem a, a hell of a long way from 
the killing fields to Kevin Bacon dancing on a tractor. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I think Chris, you put on Twitter uh, this week all of these Billboard number ones in the US, which is the only time yep. ever that's happened. Yeah, I mean these are these are all catchy, and I can definitely see. What, I mean, okay, four of them are catchy, um, and I think that. It's very clear why they were such massive hits. They were um, very of their time, and I'm sure that as film songs, they got a lot of push, you know, to create that synergy between the the film and the soundtrack, which you know was such a big uh, consideration at the time, marketing consideration. So, but yeah, all five were number ones, which is a, a unique occurrence. It's pretty cool. And something, like I say, that would be very unlikely to happen today. I mean, looking at the last couple of years, in terms of the songs that have been nominated for Best Original Song, in those years where there isn't a big Disney musical, um, it does feel like they're sort of slightly scrounging around to find uh, songs that might fit the bill. There'll be something from the end of a a faith-based movie that nobody's seen, or there'll be a very on-the-nose, earnest guitar song by either Eddie Vedder or someone who is pretending to be Eddie Vedder from some documentary <laughs> that didn't get nominated for Best Documentary. There's a sense that you know, they're reaching around, whereas here we are in 1984, and we've listed you know a good 10 or 12 songs that could quite easily have, have got in there, uh, most of which are very well known uh, to the wider public. Yeah. Uh, do we fancy ranking these? Yeah, let's Why do not? Yeah. Okay, this is where I was... I kind of said this last week, but this is where a film taste and music taste can um, diverge somewhat. Um, so people <laughs> might see a different side of us this week. Uh, but, yeah, um, who wants to start us off? Chris? Sure, I'll start. Um, I, I did struggle a little bit with this. Um between my hatred for some of the songs and also my derision for some of them as a Huey Lewis fan. But um, ultimately, I, th- I, think I, I think I was fair. Uh, number five is I Just Called to Say I Love You, um, which is not only my least favorite of the songs, but also the least consequential as a film song. So I think it deserves its spot there. Number four, Let's Hear It for the Boy. Um, the kind of lesser of the two Footloose songs in the nominees. Um, number three, Ghostbusters. Okay, sure, it's not really an original song, but it's undoubtedly a great film song, and it's catchy, and yeah, why not? Number two, uh, Footloose, and number one, Against All Odds, just to give Phil his due, and also because I think it has the best um, connection with the film on more levels than the others. Okay. Um, should I go next? Um, at five, sorry, Stevie, um, that the penance will happen tonight. <laughs> I just called to say I love you. Um, four, I've got Footloose. Uh, three, I have Let's Hear It for the Boy. I just think that's really, really catchy. Um, and two, I have Against All Odds. So sorry, Huey Lewis. Just apologies plenty this week. <laughs> I, I just think Ghostbusters is is more of a film song than the rest. Um, and it's a great song on its own right. So 
Um, yeah, I've gone for that. And shall I jump in? Shall I do my top five? Uh, so I've got the number five. Uh, I just called Sale again. Sorry, Stevie, the Dane Peggy Ashcroft of pop, um, as he will forever be known, whatever his uh, his other legacy is. Um, at number four, Ghostbusters. I have the two Footloose songs neck and neck. I have Let's Hear It for the Boy at number three, and I have Footloose Dud Track at number two, which means at number one, Justice for Collins. I think it has the the best arrangement, the best vocal performance against all odds. Open brackets, take a look at me now. Close brackets. I think we we've managed to revive single handedly in the course of this hour long podcast, Phil Collins' early eighties output. <laughs> and I think thanks must thanks must go to um his ex wife as well for leaving him and, uh, <laughs> uh can I think he said that that's turned him into a lyricist, so well done, whoever you are. It's strange how things work out. And that painter decorator who was involved. Yeah. Supporting performances. <laughs> yeah. Okay, um, we have a website. It's categoricallyoscars.com. We're on Twitter at categoricallyo. Next week, we're going to be talking about the nominees for Best Art Direction of 1972, which were Cabaret, Lady Sings the Blues, The Poseidon Adventure, Travels with My Aunt and Young Winston. Thank you, Mike, for coming on. It's been such a great episode. I haven't laughed so much in ages. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I, that's the least I can do, given that I made you listen to all these songs and watch some of these films. So, uh, you know, thank you for having me on. It's been it's been a real joy. <laughs> yeah, this was a lot of fun, and I think listening to the songs was more of a pleasure than watching some of the movies. So, the songs, nothing to apologize for. The songs, well, it's good. Good to know. <laughs> thank you. I just called to say I love you. Do you have it? Yeah. Great. We have it. Great. Can I have it then? No. No, you can't. Why not? Well, it's sentimental tacky crap. That's why not. Do we look like the kind of store that sells I just called to say I love you? Go to the mall. What's your problem? Do you even know your daughter? There's no way she likes that song. Oh, oh, oh. is she in a coma? Oh, okay, buddy. I didn't know it was pick on the middle-aged square guy day. My apologies. I'll be on my way. Bye-bye.